Army fans, a happy fall to everyone. San Batrano to our listeners in Mongolia and salam to our Ethiopian audience. As always, we appreciate you helping the fandom spread by rating and reviewing this show on your podcast platform of choice. Speaking of spread, don't get COVID. It's bad for you. Your host finally succumbed. My immune system apparently not wanting to be left out of a global trend. But I'm back and bringing you thrilling new explorations of Maine history. Having spent time in Aroostook County potato fields, we're now headed south to the coast for a look at an unusual fixture of Portland's skyline, the Portland Observatory on Montjoy Hill. It looks a bit like a lighthouse, but it's actually a maritime signal tower, part of an essential communication system for American ports in the early national period. Today's show will shine a light on how this observatory was built and the role of science and new technology in creating iconic landmarks like this one. Like a tourist from a cruise ship docked in Portland, I am ready to go. I just don't feel like walking anywhere. So let's do this. My guest today is James Risk historian of science and technology at the University of South Carolina. James, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you for some time now about your work on the Portland Observatory, one of those quirky features of the city landscape that a lot of people visit. Nobody's quite sure what to make of it. You were in the process of, of writing up your own interpretation of, of, of the meaning behind all of this. Could you begin with the Portland Observatory, that, that tall structure on Munjoy Hill? Why is it there? Interestingly, I learned about the Portland Observatory on my first visit to Portland in 2005. It was just there on uh, vacation with my wife, and we... We're, we like lighthouses. And so, you know, while we're in Portland visiting, I see this lighthouse shaped tower sitting up on top of Munjoy Hill. And it struck me, it's like, I'm pretty familiar with lighthouses and all the different lighthouses. Why don't I know about this lighthouse? And so I then started researching into it and found out it's not a lighthouse at all. It's actually a marine telegraph station. And a marine telegraph station was basically the internet for coastal communities in the early Republic period. And actually, you know, marine telegraphs kind of fade out in the late 19th century once, of course, the two-way radio replaces that mode of communication. So as a 
non-technically astute person, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners are as well. So can we get some clarification? So my understanding, when we're talking about the telegraph, this was the Morse code station that goes like beep, 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 beep with the dots and dashes. No, no, no. This precedes the Morris code. Um, oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. Morris code originates around the 1840s. And this telegraph station was built in 1807. So it's actually built just before the Jeffersonian embargo. I'm not sure how much your listeners are aware of the uh, Jefferson embargo. It's we haven't basically- done much on it. Although we can just say Jefferson shut down, said, we're not trading with anybody if you're going to take our ships. Right. And so that actually made this whole venture quite a risky proposition. But basically, this is semaphore flag signaling prior to the Morris Code that you're talking about. Oh, because here I was thinking, I know that the Morse code stuff, I believe they also called it telegraph. Yes. So that's what threw me off. So this is a system of visual flag waving? Uh, not, not just flags. Sometimes depending on the station and the system, that because each port would have their own uh, station and their own system. And there were some attempts around the 1820s where they tried to you know, adopt a universal system, but each station and each port city would have its own system. In Portland, you might fly a yellow triangular pennant to signify the arrival of a brig, okay? And so what this does, and and one of the reasons that the tower is built on Munjoy Hill is it's the highest point in the city. And by being up on the hill, any of the signals flown from the tower could then easily be seen down at the docks in the harbor. And because of Portland's landscape, you can't really see the ships coming in to the harbor until after they get around Cape Elizabeth. And with the way that docks and wharfs worked you know, in this early Republic period, you don't have a bunch of people standing around waiting to unload ships like you do today. And the merchants then would have to go out and hire the individuals to unload the ships once that they knew that their merchandise was available to them, you know, once the merchandise had come in. And so one of the main points of this telegraph was to increase the efficiency of the port by announcing the arrival of these ships earlier than when the ship is visually seen from the harbor itself. Because by then it, it, it's, it's too late, okay? So but, how much earlier are we talking that these, um, uh, that these observe, that this observatory could see? Yeah, it, coming in? It's, it's hard to judge based on time because in the age of sail, the winds determined how quickly a ship would come in. And if there is no wind, the ship could actually be visible to the observatory, but it might not be progressing towards the port very fast at all. Whereas then if there's a wind, then of course the ship is coming in much sooner. But you could spot from the observatory, you could spot a ship 20 miles probably out to sea 
And what that does is when they fly the signal to let the, the harbor and the port know that this ship is coming in, it's at that point that the ship owners and the merchants can then go out and start recruiting and hiring the labor that's going to unload the ship. And so it helps increase the efficiency by them already having that labor lined up. It also allows them to negotiate better labor rates because there's a more desperate need if you're trying to hire somebody after the ship is already in the dock. Whereas if the ship is still 20 miles out to sea, you have time, you can negotiate. Somebody doesn't like the rate that you're willing to pay them. Well, I will go on and move on to the next individual and see if he will accept my labor. So. Right. Okay. So the maritime telegraph stations are for the purposes of the people on shore. So this is different than the lighthouse networks that are there for the purposes of the incoming ships themselves then. Correct. Okay. Now, this port efficiency is just one aspect of the marine telegraph, though, because Sometimes a ship might be passing by the telegraph station, but it wouldn't necessarily be coming into port. In that case, then the ship out at sea would be able to communicate with the port and the observatory would would take that message and relay it through the different signals. And so that's where I said it's like the internet for these coastal communities before the internet actually exists. A, a ship might be passing by and you know he'll send a message saying, we just saw ship XYZ wrecked at Martha's Vineyard. And if that ship happened to be a Portland ship, then that news might be important to the community. Right. Or just a false alarm of, we are not coming to your port, so don't hire anybody <laughs> or whatever. You know, if a ship had, say, sailors on it that were sick and needed to be quarantined and needed medical care, they could relay that message to the observatory. The observatory would relay it to the port. A doctor could then be sent out to the ship to help the sailors and stuff like that. One of the key elements, one of the most famous messages that the Portland Observatory relayed was a battle during the War of 1812 in which an American ship defeated a British ship and, and basically towed the ship in to Portland. They, they actually ended up burying, I believe, both ship captains who both died in, in the engagement. But it was Ooh, the, very Trafalgar. Yeah, but, it was, but it, was, it was very much the observatory that was able to first relay that message because it receives that message from the ship as the ships are coming in. Hmm. Okay. Let's focus in a bit about the the Portland Observatory itself and its chief architect. And so Mm -hmm. that's somebody named Lemuel Moody. So why was Moody so interested in setting up this telegraph station on Munjoy Hill? I think Moody, as his prior experience as a ship's captain, having sailed to the Caribbean, he would have witnessed these marine observatories in other areas. So this type of signaling has existed pretty much since the ancient Greeks that we can trace it back to. And in the Caribbean, there are accounts of these observatories 
being used as early as like the late 15th century, early 16th century. Most of these are attached to like military installations, fortresses, because a lot of the information at the time that's being relayed is related to notification of the enemy being in the area and that sort of thing. But Moody and his travels would have witnessed these observatories, and he would have seen how they functioned and how they improved the efficiency of the port. And I think that's the main reason why he decides that he wants to build one for Portland, because he sees the benefit of of it to the Portland economy. Okay. And you mentioned, so his travels, so with a, a surname like Moody, Many Mainers will be very familiar with a name like that. There's now many Moody's in Maine. I know there's some politicians now even at the the local level, and I'm struggling to remember the first names right now. But anyway, it's a common name in Maine now. And uh, this Lemuel Moody, if I'm not mistaken, I believe we were talking before we started recording, is connected to the the York branch of the family, correct? Correct. So descended uh, a, from possibly Samuel Moody, the the famous preacher. Possibly. Um, okay. My my records into the ancestry of Moody don't go back that far, but it, okay. but it, that's very possible because it was the York family that actually deeded the Portland Observatory to the city of Portland, and this this occurs in the. Um, 1930s. And so the the connection there is to the York family. Okay. And so Lemuel himself, so what was his occupation? And when was he, so what was his roughly lifespan anyway, so we get a sense of? Yeah. So he actually serves in the American Revolution as a water boy on one of the American naval ships. And this is, he's probably you know, 10 to 13 years old at the time. He was actually born 1767. So wow, yeah, a young, a young yeah, water so, boy. So yes. very young, very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's serving as a water boy on this ship. And and from there, the experience that he gains because of that, he then ends up becoming a ship captain and sails you know, a lot of the trade from Portland is at this time going to the Caribbean. A lot of the rum and molasses is coming back, I believe, for sugar processing. Is that is that correct in, in Maine? That, that's Absolutely. One of the main... Yes. There weren't quite as many sugar molasses refineries in the, in the earlier stages. But yes, there was definitely some. And this is yeah. absolutely right. Correct. Yeah. And, and so he actually retires from seafaring in 1799. Uh, and this is during the quasi-war with France, mm-hmm. his ship is actually captured by a French privateer, and he is thrown in jail in the Caribbean for like two months. Oh. And his ship is confiscated by the French, all the cargo is confiscated, and the experience had such a profound effect on him that when he got out of prison and got back to Portland, he basically retired from, you know, being a, a, a shipmaster. Huh. I mean, I, I guess I don't blame him. Nobody, nobody likes incarceration. <laughs> in the, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. 
And so then he then he turned his his energy to to this. So was he right. was he the fundraiser, the architect? Like what was his 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 name is associated with this, but to what yeah. what extent did he have on the on yeah. the actual so, construction? So so he uh, he is kind of all things. He is the fundraiser. He is the one. He's the one who comes up with the idea. He presents it to the other Portland merchants. And in order to build this, though, nobody has the kind of money that it's going to take to build this. And so it, it ends up being built by what we call subscription. And that is basically that everybody that's interested in the service that this is going to provide will buy stock in the observatory. And the original agreement was that nobody could own more than, I believe, five shares of stock. But by the 1840s, when uh, Moody passes away, he had actually managed to purchase uh, all the stock and bring the the observatory within his family. But originally, it's all these merchants, they are $5 a a share, and and they buy, you know, various numbers of shares to, to basically construct the observatory. Were shareholders rewarded with any pay from once this thing was done? Or was this more of a, we're all merchants and we're going to contribute. Uh, um, and then a share just lets you get a vote on certain kinds of decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question because that's something that hasn't really been clear. Moody would charge for his service. So even after the observatory is built, if you wanted to obtain the signals like, like if you wanted to be able to look up and understand what signal was being flown, you paid a yearly subscription to Moody. And, and that was his form of, his, that was his livelihood. That was his income. Okay. Um, that makes more sense then. I think when he first started, it was like $2 and 50 cents for the entire year. Of course, that, that rate was raised, you know, over time, but you would subscribe to this news service essentially but there's no, doesn't seem to be any records of Moody actually paying out any sort of dividends or anything on the profits that the observatory made. So I would have to say that as an investment, if you're, you know, subscribing to this, you're initially doing it because you see the importance of the service, but then you hold that certificate. And when somebody later comes and buys that certificate from you, they might buy it at a higher rate than what you paid when you first bought the certificate. So I can see where there might be some money made in the transactions of these stocks, but I don't believe that there was actually any dividends or anything paid out during that time. The building itself in uh, in the piece you're working on, you make the mm-hmm. observation that it's built like a ship. Uh, And that it kind of looks like one. And so, you know, you probably now know more about this than almost anybody. So why, why is this thing built to look like a ship? Have you figured it out? So actually I would, I, that one of the main arguments is, is that it actually doesn't look like a ship. It looks like a lighthouse. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. and, And so when you look at a tall ship and you look at this lighthouse structure, you're like, okay, how is it built like a ship when the two don't actually look anything alike, okay? But what Moody does is he incorporates a lot of ship 
building features into the observatory. And that's one of the reasons that the observatory is still standing more than two centuries after it's built. Because when it's first built on Munjoy Hill, it's a barren windswept pasture and Maine, not just Maine, but Portland gets a lot of these gale force winds. And so you're gonna have to build this structure in such a way that, that those gale force winds aren't going to topple the tower. Because at the time, this is like the tallest structure in the city of Portland. You know, it's like 86 feet tall, six stories, you know, there's just nothing at the time that compares to that. And so what Moody does is when he builds this, yes, he, he brings in shipwrights to do the, the carpentry work. Shipwrights often doubled as house rights. But that in itself doesn't necessarily mean that the structure is built like a ship. And so when I make the argument that the structure is built like a ship, I want to take the characteristics of a ship. Most people aren't aware of the ballast that actually holds a ship upright when it's on the ocean, okay? Mm -hmm. If you have an empty ship, the tall masts are basically going to make the ship top heavy. And as the waves roll into the ship, it's actually gonna cause the ship to roll over on its side, okay? The ballast is basically a weight a lot of times it's the cargo, but in an, when the cargo, when the ship is empty, a lot of times you will fill in, in Portland, they would fill it with, you know, basically rubble stone, which is found all around Portland. And that weight would then hold the ship upright against the waves. Well, what Moody does, that's one of the first things he does when he builds this observatory is he ballasts the foundation. That is not an engineering technique then or now. And so, mm. you know, you can, you can clearly see how his experience as a shipmaster is influencing his decisions. You know, a tall ship with its mast, it's going to be subject to the winds. His tall tower is going to be subject to those same winds. So you use the ballast then to actually anchor the structure to the ground. That's the first thing that he does, okay? The next thing is, is that he actually builds the interior of the tower before he builds the exterior. And that's just like what you would do in building a ship. You build the skeletal structure of a ship, but then you actually build the interior decks before you build the outside. And Moody, is going to use scaffolding. He's going to actually build the floors of the tower and they're all going to be set in place. And then he's going to put the corner support post against the floors and then tie them all together and build the outside walls. So here again, he, he's drawing on his knowledge of shipbuilding to build this tower. But here's the thing that I find most interesting, in addition to the ballast, the observatory has six floors. Those floors are not level. And that is by design. When you build a house, you build your floors level. There's no right. reason to not have a level floor. But Moody 
again, understanding the force of the winds built the floors unlevel intentionally. They are actually higher in the middle and they are lower on the edges, what we call a camber. And the purpose of this is on a ship, your decks are cambered so that when the waves roll over the deck, the water doesn't stand there and puddle. It actually rolls off and out the sides. Oh, that makes okay? sense. But the cambered floors actually also provide additional latitudinal support. And so, again, thinking about the environmental issues and the winds that coming in off of the ocean, Moody cambers all of these floors so that it has that additional latitudinal support. He also uses what we call trinos, and these are large wooden pegs. Now, this is at a time when how you're building houses, even though we don't have mass production of nails, iron nails are still the, the common means for building a house. But Moody doesn't build his house, the, this observatory, with iron nails. He builds it with these trinos. And this is, like I said, a wooden peg. You basically bore out a hole. You pound the wooden peg in to where it's tight. And on a ship, you do this because when water gets into that joint, the wooden peg swells and then makes the, the joint watertight. Oh. In, in the high humidity of a coastal environment, Moody understands that the humidity and the water that's going to be present in this wood. And so he's going to use these as his means of, of joining all the floors to the, to the walls and the outside support posts. Hmm. He, he also raises the, the support posts the same way that you would raise the mast of a ship. Okay. And these are single piece support posts. The, the entire tower is like 86 feet tall. So the, the support posts are something like 82 feet tall. And they're 14 inches in diameter at the base. They are like 10 inches in diameter at the top. And the only way that you're going to raise that sort of post, you know, without breaking it, is to basically bury guidelines at what, what we would call dead men uh, in the ground, which are basically like hooks, and you run your cables through them, and you basically lift the support posts up. This is very similar to, you know, raising a mast on a ship, but it's also very similar to the rigging of a ship and, and, uh. keeping, and keeping those masts, you know, standing up while the ship is, is out at sea. Hmm. The observatory is, is constructed in a idiosyncratic manner. Yes. I'm guessing that this was not the first maritime telegraph station constructed on a, on a U.S. port city. Was this, though, was this a boom time of constructing these kinds of things? Uh, yeah. And there was like a whole diversity of designs or uh, what's the relationship to this particular station and this this early republic kind of phase sure. in, in construction? Sure, sure. So this is a period in which you do have a boom in the marine telegraph appearing in coastal cities throughout the eastern coast. A proprietor in Boston 
I think listed out all the, you know, all the different port cities that had these structures and pretty much any major port, New York, Philadelphia, Newport, Rhode Island. You had them on Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, Portland, Maine, Boston, but even further south, Charleston, South Carolina. There's reportedly one at Key West in Florida. Um, Presumably, there would be one in like Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, And so all of these major port cities will have these marine observatories. Now, in terms of actually building, what makes Moody's Tower special and unique is that in a lot of places, these telegraph stations are simply operating out of the merchant exchange building. So it's not that there's a separate structure for this telegraph in a lot of places. Hmm. In other places, such as Baltimore, you do have a small wooden tower, but in Baltimore, it sits up on Federal Hill. So, you know, the tower itself can be rather short because the hill itself is what gives, you know, the ability to see out over the landscape. Did this particular tower, did it end up inspiring any other uh, observatories or telegraph stations elsewhere on the eastern seaboard? Or they went, oh, you know, it's humid. I mean, Baltimore is really humid, talking about humidity, right? Yeah. So, um, Actually, I, I, I'm not aware of this tower influencing other designs. That, that's what's so unique about it is that it's a one-of-a-kind ballasted foundation one-of-a-kind cambered floors, you know, and why engineers, I mean, the tower still stands today. Now, granted, it's had some restoration work done on it over the years. It's had to have, because I want to say in the year 2000, there was a large infestation of wood-eating beetles that was basically eating the observatory from the inside out. And they had to do some major reconstruction and preservation of the observatory uh, at that time. But yeah, no no one else is really looking at this. Engineers aren't looking at this. And and that's one of my, you know, one of my research questions is, is why? If the structure is so stable and so soundly built, why isn't anyone else adopting these procedures? Yeah, this is a good question. Thinking about the telegraph stations alongside the lighthouses, are these viewed as parts of a seamless network or are these two parallel coastal networks of information? So, so that, that's actually a, a good question. On the surface, they are parallel networks, but there is some overlap. For instance, the Marine Telegraph operating out of Central Wharf in Boston actually has what is called a relay station out, I want to believe, at Brewster's Island, where there is a lighthouse. And it is actually the lighthouse keeper who is in charge of the signaling at that station. And so a lot of times these proprietors of this private marine telegraph network will work with the United States Lighthouse Establishment and the United States Lighthouse Establishment understanding the importance of the marine telegraph to the commerce of the nation was willing to allow the lighthouse keepers to make some extra money by 
also doubling as a um, signal operator for the telegraph. Taking a broader perspective, you're a scholar of science and technology. There's a bunch of lay people who are interested in lighthouses. You know, they're beautiful, they're interesting, and also in these other sort of coastal structures. Some popular writers write about these kinds of things from mm-hmm. time to time. To, and, you know, audiences really, really like that. But for you looking at this from a more uh, scholarly angle, what are some of the key differences between professional science and technology historians like yourself and the more, some have called the sort of romanticized works uh, popular sure. with lay audiences. And, you know, we want to be clear, we're not, nobody's, there's nothing wrong with people who just like looking at lighthouses and stuff. So sure. we're not knocking it, but sure. yeah. What would you say some of the key differences are to your mind? Well, I think first the key difference is the audience. And with that comes the story that you're trying to tell. So these popular romanticized versions of lighthouse history, they're geared for a very general audience. Now, I would like to hope that my research will reach a general audience and will be of interest to them as well. But one of the things that I've struggled with in that genre of lighthouse history is the fact that the facts or the interpretations don't always seem to line up with the reality of what's going on in history. And so I think as a historian of science and technology, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to take a broader view of the lighthouse establishment and show that, you know, it is indeed worth looking at from an academic standpoint. For instance, You read the the popular histories of lighthouses, and one of the things that they will tell you is is that the United States Lighthouse Establishment is anti-science because of the individual who is in charge of the Lighthouse Establishment during this time. He's the fifth auditor of the Treasury, Stephen Pleasanton. And I would argue that as a historian of science and technology, we can't make this statement that the lighthouse establishment is anti-science because we really have to look at what it is that we classify as science. And that's one of the things that I think is different about my interpretation. You know, Mm -hmm. the history of science and technology will tell you that what people are doing, even if they are not what we would consider today to be professionally trained or professionally educated scientists, that doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't science. Science is all about constructing knowledge. And so somebody that is simply tinkering around with making an improvement of a lighthouse lamp or someone who is tinkering around testing a new fuel, that is actually science. They may not be, again, an educated or scientifically trained individual, but if they're conducting research and experiments to get knowledge about how natural gas works better than spermaceti oil, that is still science. And that's one of the big complaints during this time period. And I think that's where a lot of these romanticized lighthouse histories get this from, is that 
the individuals who were scientifically trained, the engineers and, and those who are you know, physically performing the science, they look down upon these individuals who don't have the education, who are just tinkering around and they're saying, that's not science. You know, right. but, but part of why they're saying that is, is they want to gain recognition for their own expertise. Engineering in this country uh, doesn't really exist uh, until about 1840. I mean, it exists. West Point offers the first engineering courses in 1802. But those engineers, they have to not only be trained, they then have to go out and show their worth. They have to show their expertise. They have to gain recognition for that. And so there's a, there's a period of professionalization going on. And it's during this period that these engineers are basically saying, what you're doing isn't science. You need to trust us because we're the ones with the education and the knowledge. Right. I guess this makes sense. And you're also scholars like you, you pay a lot of attention, not just to the inventions and the technology and even the personalities behind them, but the, the kind of institutions and, and how institutional knowledge and expertise get classified and wielded uh, right. and contested. Right, okay. right. Um, okay. So even bigger picture, listeners who think about the first half century of U.S. history Oh, they think about, you know, the Constitution and discussions over maybe the meaning of freedom and slavery and the expansion of the republic's borders and presidents in wigs, all that stuff. You're a historian of science and technology, a, uh, a field that perhaps doesn't get the attention it deserves. And so throwing in your valuable perspectives about this growth of, uh, of scientific inquiry and the construction of these, you know, these cooperative projects on the coast. How would you say that scholarly contributions like yours challenge or, or, or add complexity to how we should think about the, the history of the early republic? So there's this notion that the Jeffersonian republic idea was anti-science, that because they were mostly interested in the agrarian economy, self-sufficiency, things like civic duty, and all those values seem to be incompatible with science. And I would argue that that's not the case. That while the Jeffersonians did understand industrialization was going to come, their notions and their ideas are actually grounded more in their value system. And it really doesn't have anything to do with being anti-science. Okay. As we wrap up, what have you been working on that our listeners should check out? So my research on the Fresnel Lighthouse Lens actually appears in the Northern Mariner which is the Journal of the North American Society for Oceanic History. And this uh, appeared in the 2018 issue. Oh, excellent. I believe, I believe it was the August uh, issue of, of that year. And that's the where I, I make my arguments um, okay. 
about applying science, the history of science and technology to the interpretation of, of lighthouses over this general popular audience. Excellent. And I, I hope that we can expect, a, a readers can expect a book down the road, maybe? Um, that article is the 30-page version of my book. Great. I, I, am, I am working on the book. It's slow coming because I, I prioritize my teaching. Sure. Um, but I do hope to have the book ready to go within the next couple of years. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, listeners, uh, no doubt, will be, will be awaiting that with much anticipation. Finally, what is somebody else working on or what does somebody else come out with that you think that our listeners should be aware of? I think your listeners might be interested in a book that was published in 2020. It's called The Truth About Baked Beans, ah. an Edible History of New England. And, and this is, I realize this is very different from what we've been talking about. Different can but, be fun. This is good. But as I read this book, there are a lot of myths surrounding New England's culinary scene, such as baked beans. There's some myths about Yankee pot roast, myths about lobster being fed to prison inmates because uh, it was so abundant that it was actually cheap. And now, you know, lobster is like one of the most expensive seafoods on the market. Right. Um, this book, I, I, I've always enjoyed food history. And so mm -hmm. when I saw this book and picked it up, I was like, yeah, I, I, I want to read this. And, and, and I wasn't disappointed. That book is written by Meg Muckenholt, came out in 2020. Oh, great. So, All right. Well, we yeah. will have, as always, we'll have links to those on our, on our social media feeds for people to check out. James Risk, thank you so much for stopping by. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That's our show. Join us again soon for our next episode about a scandal-plagued Speaker of the House from Maine and his role in one of the dirtiest presidential elections in American history. That's next time on Maine History.